Bills and Going. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 541. It's just me and Jason today. And uh, we're going to put together a episode about basically about Sky Clock, I guess, mostly. Uh, but it's drawn from the Masonic point of view. Years ago, it was a lot more difficult to get things that were written and sanctioned uh, by the secret fraternity. Uh, these days, there's a lot published and you can get your hands on it. And actually, we're going to be pulling from a book called Stellar Theology and Masonic Astronomy. And do you remember, is it the second chapter, Jason? Third chapter. Third chapter. So it's not, I guess I wouldn't quite call it a pamphlet, but it's not far from pamphlet. It's got a lot of good information the average person would do well to know about. Uh, it shows how those are laid out. Uh, and this this was common practice back in the day. Today, you can go see all the cathedrals and other buildings back in time, and they're all oriented to minimally the equinoxes and solstices, among other things. But a quick comprehension of the zodiac and to the sun should be standard learning for anyone. So my point, this is a pretty inexpensive book. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, George Ball did the forward. Is that right? Yes, he wrote the forward, which we're going to pull up a couple of points from. And it was he who decades ago got this book back into print. Okay. It's just good knowledge. Most of it. Some of it, not so much. Like who cares what the hidden word is or what the mysterious key, you know, all the, the Masonic centric things, but the general knowledge, everyone should have a peek and comprehend. It's good information, which is why we're going to do this. Anyhow, you got anything or you want to just jump right in here? Nope, let's go for it. All right. So from the intro to the book that was written by Jordan Maxwell, what place do occult, astronomical, and Masonic signs and symbols have on churches? Why do they appear in corporate logos? Why are governmental and organizational seals, public and private agency badges, etc., filled with such occult signs and symbols? If signs and symbols are meaningless, why are they there? Why not remove them? If people do not know the meaning of the symbols, why have them? If the signs and symbols have meaning, who is doing the communicating? If the symbols have meaning, why hide the meaning? To whom are they communicating? Who is the intended audience? Who put the symbols there? Are such signs and symbols a joke by graphic artists, architects, or construction engineers? Or is the usage of such symbols deliberate and purposeful? I think we'll go with deliberate and purposeful. And I don't think anyone who follows along here needs to be told that sacred geometry creates an energy. Even just taking a pencil on a piece of paper, that is an energy. And the wielder of the pencil is putting intent into that energy that they're creating. But mostly today, I think a lot of the logos and other things are a secret communication because most of us just wander through a day and we don't give a lot of thought to why a logo is a color or a shape or any other things. That's changed a little bit recently. There have been numbers of people on YouTube that have taken apart, say, the, you know, the gas industry logos or car logos to some degree. But it's pretty clear that there's significance there. Few people of religious bent, Jew, Christian, or Muslim, have any idea at all of the profound meaning and implications in these religious symbols for world Freemasonry. Fewer still have any knowledge of the occult or hidden connections between Judaism, Christianity, the Bible, and world Freemasonry. 
Unless and until such occult knowledge of religious symbols is understood, we will have nothing but the same confusion we have had for the last 2,000 years. Well, for anyone who's followed Mr. Maxwell, you get a view you never would have had probably about language and how words are used. Go to the KL episodes or other legal episodes that we've done and you see that there are many forms of language that we all kind of act like wish that we learned in grade school, which is clearly not true. There is a level of communication that runs basically everything from legal systems to, well, for that matter, a corporation. You know, when I was a, a roadie, part of the year was done when there were no rock shows or theaters at convention centers doing conventions for different corporations. And I remember sitting in on a, uh, it was a gas company that had done drilling. And the first day I sat there, I couldn't understand a lot of what was being said because they had their own corporate language. And as I sat there over the course of a week, I figured out what they were saying. And basically what they were saying is every time we drill, we trash the joint. The whole game here is to get permission to drill, trash the joint because we can't drill without trying and then minimize or escape cleanup costs on the back side. And while there was an open convention that almost anyone could have to, no one would have been able to decipher most of the that were being said. And that's just a very kind of small example of an industry that has kind of formed its own language. Well, above all that, in our legal systems and beyond, uh, there's a whole world of occult knowledge. People like Jordan Maxwell and people like James Shelby Downard will assign this firmly to the Masonic organization that has been worldwide for Lord knows how long. Reading Brown's book, you will notice that stellar theology and Masonic astronomy forms the basis for much of today's religious concepts and belief structure, both in the assumptions and the expressions of today's religious, social, educational, corporate, and governmental organizations. You will note that these signs and symbols are in evidence everywhere in society. Just a little concentration to overcome the familiarity of your surroundings, and the scales will be lifted from your eyes and the shackles removed from your mind. You will see the world around you as never before, the way it really is, and you will see how its secrets were hidden in plain sight. Truly, many will look with their eyes but not see. Remember, most truths in life are revealed through open secrets. This reprint book helps make the truth simpler and easier to understand, and one's choice is better. Enjoy the book from Jordan Maxwell. I'm with you, Jordan. Even though I know you're no longer with us, I think people should grab a small, easy-to-get-through book like this. Uh, you could knock it out in an evening or two, but there's a lot there that, from my point of view, is basic comprehension that people should know because very little information is given us about the sky clock. You know, how long ago was it when YouTube was relatively new? Must be 2008, something like that. And you started to see these videos coming up, taking apart the car logos. Why are so many of them associated, maybe all of them associated with the sky clock? And even the ones that aren't Saturnian or not clearly, you know, decoded in some way, you can go to Japan and look at like a Subaru or something. That's the Pleiades sitting there. Why are all these car logos for some reason echoing something that's in the sky clock above our head? Look at a Dodge Ram. Where do you suppose that symbol comes from? 
why is it that we were never shown anything about this? And I think this is case in point for what Jordan Maxwell was laying down. There's a whole layer of in plain view communication going on that most of us are completely oblivious to. From the author's intro, the writer of this work was, for a long time, in considerable doubt as to the propriety of its publication, not because he had any lack of faith in the truth of the theory it advocates, but from a fear that the revelations it contains might be thought unlawful according to a strict construction of the Masonic obligation. But, after consulting with many conscientious as well as eminent members of the fraternity, the author was confirmed in his belief that nothing is said in the book which discloses any of the essential secrets of that order. The essential secrets of Freemasonry are defined by Dr. Oliver in his Dictionary of Symbolical Masonry as consisting of nothing more than the signs, grips, passwords, and tokens essential to the preservation of the society from the inroads of impostors, together with certain symbolical emblems, the technical terms appertaining to which serve as a sort of universal language by which the members of the fraternity can distinguish each other in all places and countries where lodges are instituted. And by the way, by obligations, they mean the oaths that they take. Yeah, this is complete poppycock. So you're telling me that the secrets that can't be shared about Freemasonry are just your little handshakes so you can identify one another and prevent imposters. Well, double poppycock. You guys have been taken over. Exactly when that happened, I don't know. It's pretty common knowledge that they were taken over. It's pretty common knowledge that Masonry now is not what it once was. And I'm not referring to back in the days when there were stone cutters. And that's another interesting thing about this little book. They down the operative Masons. They distance themselves and belittle, maybe not belittle, maybe that's not the right word, but they try to distance themselves from what they are, speculative Masons, much grander than these poor serfs that cut stone. At least that's the impression that it, it gave to me. But if you followed along with people like James Shelby Downard, they were infiltrated. They were taken over. And if truly the only secrets they can't put in this book are about how they identify each other, then why would anyone ever want to be a Mason? I could easily live my whole life without knowing a secret handshake, which this is echoed in the book in a few places. The main point of this paragraph in the book is to say, well, I wanted to write these important things that the world should know about, but I was afraid I was going to break Masonic law. So after I dutifully put it before, all the big muckety mucks, they all assured me, no, you can publish this out to the public. There's no secrets. As we know, our secrets are mostly secret symbols and handshakes so we can identify each other. Anyhow. The ancient mysteries described. If we closely examine the elder forms of religious worship, we will find in most of them that God is worshipped under the symbol of the sun. This is not only true of those nations called pagan, but we also find in the Bible itself the sun alluded to as the most perfect and appropriate symbol of the Creator. The sun is the most splendid and glorious object in nature. The regularity of its course knows no change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is the physical and magnetic source of all life in motion. Its light is a type of eternal truth its warmth of universal benevolence. 
It is therefore not strange that man in all ages has selected the sun as the highest and most perfect emblem of God. Okay, so I, I guess I take umbrage with a little of this. We constantly get this idea that those poor pagans of the past were so deluded that they thought this was a god or that was a god. I think that's modern modern refashioning. I think what was actually going on is they recognized the energies within nature. I think that was actually going on, if you go back to a place like Rome, way back, there was a temple to Mars, to Venus, to Jupiter. That was a full spectrum view of the energies in their time being marked by seven luminaries, the sun and moon being two, the most outer supposed planets uh, not yet discovered, we are told, Pluto, Uranus, Neptune. Having said that, the political powers began removing those temples till there was just a sun. Then the sun, which was Mithraism or some form of it, one way or another in any given culture, and the one we're familiar with was in a cave under the Vatican, and one day the they flipped the switch. It went upstairs along with the hat, the name, I think the name Pope, I think even the altar went. And within a year, it was illegal to worship the sun. So these things were all a manipulation. And from my point of view, what I have noticed about controlling society, it seems to me that one of the very basic first steps is the requirement that they are detached from nature. And the reason for that is because nature is truth. If you are detached from truth, then it is much more doable to manipulate masses of people with things that are not true or close facsimiles or approximations of nature. Synthetic things can be pushed in place now. From my point of view, what was actually going on was the sun was appreciated. Now, I'm sure we can all find cultures where maybe that was the main focus, maybe that was their God, but in general, I'm saying this is a modern creation dodge to get us thinking in the wrong way. Anyone who has studied the mysteries, and even Bill Cooper said this during his Mystery Babylon series, the sun was not considered the god. It wasn't God himself. It was a representation of God. The sun was God's son and was apparent of his power. There you go. Emblematic. So if we can see this thing that is the light of this world that allows everything to grow that guarantees basically all the life and food and water and everything we need here that is emblematic of an amazing creator of however this place was created. And I think that's a, a fair observation of what was going on there. And to take it a bit further, there is still language we can see, like in the Bible, the idea of the acceptable year of the Lord. And for my money, probably the Reverend Robert Taylor in the devil's pulpit, does the best job at taking apart what the acceptable year of the Lord is and why it's important. And again, we come down to a manipulation. The sun gives us true time along with the moon, which we have forsaken. We don't really use the moon in time in the modern era. Point being is even in the opening, it's on time yesterday. It's on time today. It will be on time till the end of time. There, there will never be a time when it isn't exactly where it should be at the exact moment it should be. And that is true time, or maybe we could even say God's time as dictated by the sky clock, which never deviates. And so what we see is that shunted aside for the time we keep. And there it is again, 
the separation from nature so then it can be manipulated. A big example of this is rubber barons put the railroad in and come up with the idea of time zones. And suddenly, two men a thousand miles away will be looking at noon at the same time, which is a complete farce. And that's a manipulation and a separation from truth. The zodiac is the apparent path of the sun among the stars. It was divided by the ancients into 12 equal parts, composed of the clusters of stars named after living creatures, typical of the 12 months. This glittering belt of stars was therefore called the zodiac, that word meaning living creatures, being derived from the Greek word zodiakos, which comes from zoon, an animal. This latter word is compounded directly from the primitive Egyptian radicals zo, meaning life, and on, a being. You know, this is one of the things that got me looking at the sign of Libra way back. You know, how can it be all these definitions? It's about living creatures, even if they're made up creatures or mythical creatures. And there we have a piece of metal. One of the reasons I got to looking at it. But wouldn't it be interesting to know that if in the basement of the Vatican, or maybe even in a secret society, they have an alternative zodiac, uh, an older zodiac. I mean, we're reasonably sure there was a time when there were 10 months counted, uh, probably a time when eight months were counted. I think we might be able to roll it back through time if we have the wherewithal, which we really don't, to get back to four months or basically four seasons. Having said that, how much effort has been spent to confuse the idea of astrology. If we go back to like Tycho Brahe's time, we're told over and over there's no division there. Astronomy is astrology and vice versa. So as people were doing the hard science observation and everything we call astronomy, they were drafting charts for a king and they were sought after, which tells you there must have been some value there. If there was no value, people would not have been standing in line or using their power and influence to get them. And yet what we see to this day is a complete shuffling zodiacal scrabble board. And this is proven on every map. Well, actually, that's not even true because most modern maps no longer show you the tropics. But we are aware tropics are there. You can still occasionally see a map that will list it. What are they telling you? They're telling you that During the summer solstice, at the sun's highest northern extent for that year, it's the Tropic of Cancer, the crab. They further tell you that in and around the most southern or lowest extent of the sun for the year, the winter solstice, is going to occur in Capricorn. This is a lie. This is a bald-faced falsehood. We, according to what I can put together, closest I can come, in the summer, we should probably be in the Tropic of Gemini. And in the winter, we're right in that weird area where Ophiuchus would play into it. But since most of us don't count a 13 sign system, we'll just say Sagittarius. And so how can it be that even our maps are, I don't know, over 2,000-year-old astronomical ideas? Does not that show the intent of the modern systems to keep us separated from what? From the acceptable year of our Lord. So we were having them with either the internet connection or the mic, and a couple words got dropped here and there. We've stopped for a minute. I've tried to fix it on my end. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll be better as we go forward.
The sun, as he pursued his wan among these living creatures of the zodiac, was said in allegorical language either to assume the nature of or to triumph over the sign he entered. The sun thus became a bull in Taurus and was worshipped as such by the Egyptians under the name of Apis and by the Assyrians as Bel, Baal, or Bull. In Leo, the sun became a lion slayer, Hercules, and an archer in Sagittarius. In Pisces, the fishes, he was a fish, Dagon, or Vishnu, the fish god of the Philistines and Hindus. When the sun enters Capricornus, he reaches his lowest southern declination. Afterward, as he emerges from that sign, the days become longer, and the sun grows rapidly in light and heat. Hence, we are told in the mythology that the sun, or Jupiter, was suckled by a goat. The story of the twelve labors of Hercules is but an allegory of the passage of the sun through the twelve signs of the zodiac and past constellations of proximity thereto. All right, if this is really truly what the Masonic organization accepts as true, then there is a can of worms here to be opened where there is no bottom, as far as I could tell. So as you read through this book, they're going to count the zodiac as if it was 2,000 years ago. Now, look, the difference between like when we have Athenon, sidereal, basically the difference is, is what Athens trying to do and rework out in the modern era is I go out, I see what's actually truly observably there, and I work from that premise. Other forms of astrology follow along, calculate away. If everything in this paragraph lifted from this book is true, the idea was the reason we have the bull is because it well represents the qualities of life as the sun enters the sign of the bull could be described bullish. Well, guess what? The bull is not the same time of the year, same geography as it was when whoever put this together put it together. First observation. But here's the real problem. Within the book, they continually point you back to this is the first of the year, and we're going to fake like that's now. And they use like one or two sentences to establish that, by the way, everything has changed because of the procession of the equinoxes flipping backwards through the zodiac, but that doesn't really matter. We're going to use this way. And they do it a number of times. This seems to be one of the big secrets because what they're publicly doing is showing you how to be confused. Look, if I was back in this time and I went out and the sun was in the sign of the bull, well, then wouldn't I make my assumptions based on that? Well, when I go out now, the sun is not in the bull and yet I am acting as if it is. And this is not a poke at tropical astrology or any other thing. What this is, is I'm saying all the tropical astrologers, all the sidereal, we should all work together. As a matter of fact, we probably don't have definitions for any of this without tropical astrology ideas. But my point is, doesn't this demonstrate that somewhere along the line, people purposely tried to erase the footprints or the path that we could follow? And I feel that's where we are now. We have to read this out and put it all together. And it's daunting because in old, you will read 
well, we were fortunate that we inherited from civilization, which, you know, observed for thousands of years or other claims made to know what they knew. I think that is the real information that has been squirreled away and hidden. And they put these fanciful narratives for us to follow, like that we should actually believe there's a tropic of cancer in our time, which there is not. All right. We had endless problems recording the way we typically do with dropout, which unfortunately you're going to hear a little bit of. We've switched over to a new method and we're going to see how this goes. So it's all you, Jason. Let's cross our fingers and hope it was just the tool we were using. The beautiful virgin of the Zodiac, Virgo, together with the moon under a score of different names, furnishes the female element in these mythological stories, the wonderful adventures of the gods. These fables are most of them absurd enough if understood as real histories, but the allegorical key being given, many of them are found to contain profound and sublime astronomical truths. This key was religiously kept secret by the priests and philosophers and was only imparted to those who were initiated into the mysteries. The profane and vulgar crowd were kept in darkness and believed in and worshipped a real Hercules or Jupiter, whom they thought actually lived and performed all the exploits and underwent all the transformations of the mythology. Do you get what the Masonic book just laid down? Those stupid rubes actually believed there was a real Hercules. Do you get what's being said here? So basically, the idea of the profane probably was come up with back in a time when the priests wanted to hold their power. And so they made up stories. Without the keys to the stories, you couldn't get at what were actually astronomical truths about the sky clock, about the acceptable year of the Lord, about any number of things that fashion and shape how we live our lives. And so at some point, I guess, people lost some of the keys to the narratives. Whether or not that's true to this day, I can't tell you. Um, I would be surprised uh, with libraries like what we assume is in the Vatican if much was lost at all. I would estimate that probably not a lot was lost. But think of the differences between, say, China in the East and what might have been going on in Europe. But at the end of the day, if you pay careful, careful attention, they just told you that priests made up stories to hide truths and characters stood in for bodies above and the silly rubes that the priests were in charge of believed in the personages they came up with. In regards to what we will be discussing from this point on, the book says that no attempt will be made to give a cause or philosophy of solar or sidereal movements, the sole object being to bring clearly before the mind the apparent annual path of the sun in the zodiac and such other celestial phenomena as are required to properly understand the allegorical application which is to be made of the facts of astronomy to the Masonic traditions, legends, emblems, and symbols. 
This chapter will serve to call the particular attention of those who are proficient in science to certain particular astronomical facts bearing directly upon our subject, and it is hoped will also contain enough to sufficiently instruct those who may have grown rusty in or never acquired a knowledge of the motions of the celestial bodies. In other words, what's getting laid down here is grade school at best, but isn't the language interesting? Uh, No attempt will be made to give a cause or philosophy of solar or sidereal movements. The sole object, they're saying, is that they're going to talk about the apparent annual path of the sun. That's quite a statement. Apparent, what it appears to be, not what it actually is. Anyhow, so here it is. We're going to give you a little kindergarten primer here for everybody listening. The ecliptic. The ecliptic is a great circle in the heavens surrounding the earth and representing the apparent path of the sun each year among the stars. Now here we're getting into things where uh, in the previous chapter, they're kind of making a joke that this is just basic, such a low level All right, I got interrupted by the dog, as you could hear, but the ecliptic is one of those things which everyone should be aware of, and it's very easy to go out and get a grasp. It's the path of the sun and the moon, roughly. Just use the sun. Can't go wrong by using the path of the sun. Now, most of the luminaries travel in and about this this band, but we'll define it a little bit further in the next paragraph. The zodiac. The zodiac is a belt of stars extending eight degrees on each side of the imaginary circle called the ecliptic. The zodiac is therefore 16 degrees wide and being a complete circle is 360 degrees in circumference. It is divided into 12 equal parts of 30 degrees, each denoting the particular place which the sun occupies during each of the 12 months of the year. Each of these divisions of the zodiac in the visible heavens is marked and occupied by a separate and distinct group or cluster of stars called a constellation. These constellations are named after certain living creatures, supposed to have been originally emblematic of the month in which the sun entered them. You know, it's funny, you keep saying living creatures, but we know that Libra... It's not a living creature. It's not just Libra. You know, what was the, I, I wish, I wish Rose was actually here because we should refer people to the episode where we did how the constellations came to be. There were not that many of them. They were all in the Northern hemisphere and a crap load of them were just made up out of thin air. And then we start getting ones like telescopium or microscopium. These are not living creatures and it's defeating the whole purpose of these records that are claiming animals or mythical living animals were used to convey an energy that could teach us something about what was going on at this particular time of the year. Consider Aquarius, the you know, a man pouring out water. Well, there was a time when the rains were coming. Um, they were communicating something, the bull idea, the lion idea. So when we come forward, it's just all this other things have been added in. And when I started to talk about Libra, man, did I get pushback, but I could demonstrate this was added in later. Provably so. The two main stars in Libra are the old claws of the scorpion. 
Zubin el Shanubi and Zubin el Shamali, or whatever those two stars are properly called. Basically, if I remember correctly, the north, northern and southern claws of the scorpion. And so it doesn't undermine that it appears what's happened is that things were updated to reflect the time we were in, but we know something about what Mason's up to. They're sneaky. So we know they're sneaky, and this brings up the idea of a 30-degree division for each sign. I can go back to older accounts that I have read where there was no such thing as an equal 30-degree division. So how much of this has been implemented to lead us astray? My thing is that no man rewrites the sky clock. So basically, if something is lost, it's just what we know or how we deal with it. In other words, that can be recovered. But there are so many questions. And when we read things like this from the Masons, who we know do things that people don't appreciate, and they're a secret society to boot, uh, and they view all of us who are not members as profane, how much of this is a diversionary tactic, you know, like, like the Tropic of Cancer? to get us thinking in the wrong way. I'm just asking the questions because I suspect that that's exactly what a lot of this is. First up is Aries. This was once the first constellation of the Zodiac. It is now the second by reason of the precession of the equinoxes, which will be subsequently explained. It is known by two bright stars about four degrees apart, which are in the horns of the ram. The brightest of these, called Areatus, is used by navigators to compute longitude by the moon's distance. Most of the stars in this constellation are small. Aries in the Hebrew zodiac is assigned to Simeon or by some to Gad. Now there's another thing. With all the controversy in our history about Jewishness, this organization, every temple is replicating Solomon's temple. Almost everything you read is old Testament Bible, like we just read here from the tribe of Simeon or Gab. There were all these associations made. But to get back to the point, listen to what they open with here. This used to be the first constellation. I can show you plenty of people in the world right now that still count it as the first constellation. But what they're admitting is that procession, which is misdescribed from my point of view, has occurred. So truly, it's the next one in line. Now, if we go by all the old definitions, we've basically fallen from the head, which is what Aries represents in the human body, down to the feet. How closely does that seem to represent what we're experiencing in modern history? My point is, is I think all the pieces and parts are here. I think if we work together and all the traditions come together, that we can begin to piece back very meaningful things. Unfortunately, The histories that I have read claim that hundreds, if not thousands of years, were expended to learn about how the sky clock moves. Now, if that's true, well, then there's some work. Is it possible that something will get released someday that is hidden from us now? I suppose it is. Is it possible that the very organization that wrote this book knows the truth? I suppose it is. My point being is we need to be diligent and we need to think for ourselves and we need not simply accept these things that we're being told, particularly about the sky clock. Next is Taurus. This constellation is next to Aries in the Zodiac. 
and is one of the most celebrated and splendid. The Pleiades are in Taurus, and near it is the magnificent constellation Orion, called Orus by the Egyptians. In that sublime chapter of the Old Testament, Job 38, mention is made of these. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Taurus, once seen and recognized in connection with Orion, is never forgotten. So here, here is the basis of a thing that has been lost. In our very scriptures to this day, in the book of Job, you are informed that there are sweet influences coming from the Pleiades. And then they turn around and mention some other things which have been diligently hid as well as they could be hid. Instead of calling the Zodiac Zodiac, I think the common accepted idea is that they used a word Maseroth, which is not commonly known by most people. Um, These things made it into the Bible. What we're told is that the sky clock has no part in either Jewishness in their temples or in Christianity, and yet here it is in our Bibles. And what we actually know is true is that so much of this is allegorically tied to the sky clock. And again, everyone should be able to go out and easily recognize the Pleiades. It's not that hard. It's high in the sky for most of us. It's easy to spot. It's next to a big right, a big red star, which is the eye of the bull, because really you're only looking at the head and the shoulders of the bull mostly. Um, and that is called, I don't want to get this wrong, all the A stars. I've done this in a while. Is it Aldebaran? or Arcturus, it's Aldebaran, I think is the eye of the bull. Let me actually confirm that. Yes, uh, the eye of the bull, which is red, is Aldebaran. And interestingly enough, in one of the old astrology dictionaries I had, there was an old idea that the color of that star informed us that it had a negative connotation. So not too long ago, every individual star could be said to be having its energies. And a cluster of stars like the Pleiades could be said. Luminary, like what we call a planet, it could be said to have its energies. And how can we ever dismiss this? Even if I turn on a flashlight, there are energies. Or I wouldn't see the light. So the idea that all of this should have been dismissed is a false idea. And the shuffling of it and the confusing of it, I think, is because it's important. The bull is represented as engaged in combat with Orion and plunging toward him with threatening horns. The face of the bull is designated by five bright stars in the shape of a letter V, known as the Hyades, the most brilliant of which is Aldebaran, which is much used by navigators. The tips of the horns of the bull are marked by two bright stars at an appropriate distance above the face. The Pleiades gleam brightly near the shoulder. Orion, who faces the bull, is known by four bright stars, forming a large parallelogram, in the center of which is seen a diagonal row of stars known as the Belt of Orion, and called in Job the Bands of Orion. The four stars of the parallelogram, respectively, indicate his shoulders and feet. A line of smaller stars form his sword, its handle ornamented by a wonderful nebula. Just below Orion shines, with a splendor almost equal to Jupiter or Venus, the mighty sun star Sirius, the deified Sothis of the Egyptians. 
Further east and over him flashes that brilliant star known as Procyon. These two, with Betelgeuse, in the shoulder of Orion, form an equilateral triangle, whose sides are each 26 degrees, which is so perfect and beautiful as almost to force itself upon our attention. Taurus, Orion, Sirius, the Pleiades, and Hyades are all frequently alluded to by the poet Virgil in the Georgics. This is perhaps the most magnificent and sublime quarter of the heavens north of the equator. They are making a big deal about this part of the sky, and there are many reasons to do so. Uh, the brightest thing in the sky is Sirius, the star known as the dog star. Not far from it, Procyon, which is the smaller dog. If you have ever looked through a telescope at the nebula called, I believe it's M42 on the Messier catalog, or the Orion Nebula, it is quite a thing and maybe one of the most readily viewable nebula that there is. Everybody nearly can look up and recognize the belt of Orion or the constellation of Orion. How much effort was done on early YouTube before the censorship set in trying to make the argument that there was something important about the nebula in Orion and that the constellation itself had been built into all these altars and the artwork around it. Clearly some important things about this portion of the sky clock. And I would further point out that he's just not rattling off. Oh, here's Sirius. Here's Bruce. He's telling you, look, here's an equilateral triangle. Each side is 26 degrees. When you get to that level of specificity, there's an importance going on, which is not being openly stated, I would point out. And the last part on Taurus, and for our one, Taurus was held by the Egyptians and most of the nations of antiquity as a sacred constellation. Before the time of Abraham, or over 4,000 years ago, it adorned and marked the vernal equinox, and for the space of 2,000 years, the bull was the prince and leader of the celestial host. The sun in Taurus was deified under the symbol of the bull and worshipped in that form. The sacred figures found among the ruins of Egypt and Assyria, in the form of a bull with a human face or with a human shape with the face and horns of a bull, are emblematic of the sun in Taurus at the vernal equinox. In the Hebrew zodiac, Taurus was ascribed to Joseph. The zodiac has four principal points. These are the two solstitial and two equinoctial points dividing the circle of the zodiac into four equal parts. These four points were anciently marked by the stars Fomalhaut, Aldebaran, Regulus, and Antares. So, Fomalhaut, these were, I think, was it the royal stars? There's a certain name. I guess I would have to look it up. But Fomalhaut is near Pisces. Uh, Aldebaran is the eye of the bull Taurus. Regulus is a gorgeous bluish-white star. I remember it as the heart of the lion Leo. And Antares, a kind of spooky heart of the scorpion because of its orangey-red, ruddy but bright color. These were all well-known things. And how can it be if we go to a place like Egypt and we see things like the pyramids and we see all the statuary that a place that's building things like that is so closely connected to what's going on over our heads. Couldn't we make the assumption that part of the, the fall and the separation of modern men and women from 
the freedom that we once probably enjoyed in this place was to separate us from nature and the importance of the sky clock. I can't even start to put it all together. All the things that I've read from the idea that the phase of the moon and the portion of the year that you pass on in has to do with what will happen next, whether you're reborn here or something else. I've read claims that would make your head spin. And some of them from very prominent writers in very prominent organizations, there are critically important things that we need to relearn about the sky clock. And here we're doing the basic, what the Masons are worth willing to share with in public. And for me, this is a basic, really like a grade school understanding. This is where it starts. These are the things you should be able to easily identify when you go out into the world. But with that, Jason, we've had endless trouble with the internet connection today. And sadly, I think we're going to have to stop here at hour one and work something else out before we can record hour two. Yeah, that seems like the best thing. We've got a lot more to get through. You know, it's interesting. The Masons seem to think that, (laughs) I, I mean, how do you put it? Is there like an arrogance to them? Like it's such a big deal about what it is that they do. They're literally just taking what the mystery said thousands of years ago and just slapping their own brand on it. It's the same thing. It's just, it's the sun in the sky. It's the stars in the sky. It's all the things related to the sky clock. Other than that, I mean, what else are we talking about here? Getting a square deal down at the used car dealership? Or maybe playing a prominent role in trying to take over the world. I think that's in the Well, come on we, now. Yeah, if we want to listen to uh, James Shelby Downard, And other people, Maxwell, maybe even The Simpsons. I think they wrote a catchy song about Masonic influence in our world as they made fun of it. But yeah, there's a whole portion of the creation that we typically ignore, and that's above our head. And what's sad is what is put into our textbooks comes to us from places like NASA. Places like NASA lie for a living. I don't accept any of it. And that may make me wrong some of the time, but I don't care. I'd rather be wrong then diluted. And uh, so for my part, uh, I went out and I started over and I started observing and it did me well. I feel like I gained a lot from throwing out everything I'd been told and just trying to apply my own observation. But it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to go out and pay attention to the sky clock. And when the Masons use the word sublime, I'm not mincing hair as it is. It absolutely is. It's amazing. And there is so much we need to re-understand. But what I know for certain is they've shuffled the Scrabble board here. Even our maps are proof that that is true. They've got us working from sky clock ideas that are thousands of years out of date. But with that, Jason, I'm going to wrap up hour one, and we're going to have to figure out what our internet problem is. But there's hour one of episode 541 with just me and Jason going over Masonic ideas about the sky clock. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. They get access to all the forums, comments under every episode, and free access to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon, which covers all my telescope work. With that, we're going to try to figure out what's going on with their connection here, and I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And then we'll come back and record hour two. Hope to see you over there as a member. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing.